All right. Good morning, everybody. I, I know I already said that once, but uh, it's still it's nice to see you. Uh, I was uh, I'm excited to be here again with you this morning. Uh, we were gone last week uh, to a wedding in Virginia, uh, but it's good to be back and and worshiping with uh, with you guys as we uh, are putting down our roots here in the area, and, and you guys are becoming more like family to us. We're excited to be back. Um, but I do have something to share with you. Might be shocking, maybe even offensive to some. But I love algebra. I know, I know. It's difficult, especially this morning with talking about being tested and tried and uh, being persecuted. Uh, some of you might feel that way about math in general. And I used to feel the same way. I used to, to be bored with math and, and, and ask, for those of you that are still in school, to ask that question of why does this even matter? Why do I need to be doing this right now? Uh, what's the point of it? And then all of a sudden, when I got into college, I started making friends all over the state. And so I'd be driving around the state, you know, up and down Interstate 20 and 26 and just all over the place to go and, and hang out for a weekend with friends and things like that. And all of a sudden, algebra connected with real life. I'm driving down the road and I'm thinking, all right, if I'm, if I'm driving consistently at this many miles per hour and I have this many miles to go, and all of a sudden I'm writing these word problems in my head and I'm thinking, math does apply to real life. Look at that. And, but it, 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 it was that connection where it took these, these theories and these equations that felt so abstract and removed from life and suddenly they were connected to a real-world application. And all of a sudden math, this might be shocking, but math became fun to me. And uh, it, to, the, to the point where I was actually a, uh, an algebra teacher for a semester. But that's a whole other story for another day. But, um, but there, there was an excitement there because it connected, it intersected with everyday life. And that's what we're getting into in the book of James. Because throughout Scripture, there are these wonderful things that we read, and all of, all of Scripture is good and true and applicable to life. But some of it seems more abstract than others. Things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's true, and it's very valid. But How? How do you do that? Well, James takes these things that are throughout Scripture that seem so abstract, and he says, this is how. Do this. Don't do this. It's very much real-world application. And that's what we're going to be getting into for the next several weeks through the book of James, um, is just James's practical, everyday, real-world application. And for some quick background information, the James that wrote this letter is most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, there are a few other theories and ideas of who it could possibly be, but based on uh, just the evidence and other writings and uh, the, the history of what Scripture says about who James was and what he did, it is most likely that Jesus' half-brother James wrote this letter. Uh, but he's writing it specifically to a group of believers that he calls uh, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And in, in this title, in this greeting, he's referring to all of those believers that have been scattered. And if you've read through the book of Acts, you see that in Acts 7, after Stephen is stoned, 
that there's this persecution that starts coming against uh, these Christian believers, and out of fear and oppression, they scatter, they run, they are dispersed. And so when James is writing this letter to the church and to the believers in the dispersion, these are the believers that he's addressing, the ones that are wholeheartedly devoted to the church and to the gospel and to Christ, but out of fear for their very lives, they've just ran. And so James is writing to these believers in their fear, and he's reminding them that every Christian can still find hope even in the midst of their struggles. Even when they're living in fear, even when they're tempted to walk away from the very faith that has saved them, James says, no, no, no. Consider it joy. It's not just fear. It's not just trials. There is joy to be found in these struggles. And it's just as true for for you, for the believers today, for the church today as it was when it was written to the church 2,000 years ago. And so so believers, for you today, James is saying that you also can find hope in the midst of your struggles And I'm going to break it down in these three ways by recognizing first the trials in your circumstances. Secondly, the temptation in your own heart. And lastly, the truth in what God has done. Before we go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us this morning. We thank you for the gift of another day to wake up to rejoice in this creation that you have made. And as we come together this morning to, to come and worship you, to, to sing your praises, to receive your word, God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit into this place, that you would remind us that we are not alone, we are not abandoned, that even in our struggles, that you give hope. Speak to us through your word. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Now when James writes these letters, compared to uh, the letters from Paul, which usually have these lengthy introductions and greetings, where uh, an an English teacher would despise what Paul has written because his run-on sentences last about five paragraphs, James instead just jumps right in. He says, to those of you in the dispersion, greetings. Boom, let's get in. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a way to start a letter, huh? I know you're hurting, but consider it joy. But here's the thing, it's not superficial. I know a lot of times uh, when people get wounded, there, there's just this Christian mask that we sometimes put on. They're like, you know, I, I, life is hard right now, but I know God is doing this for a purpose, and I'm going to consider it joy. This isn't that. This isn't, you know what, I I just lost my job. This is my best life now. Or my boyfriend or my girlfriend just dumped me. I'm hashtag blessed. This isn't just a superficial joy or or Christian niceties that he's trying to to, uh, describe here. It's not superficial because James's goal is not a comfortable life. 
It's not the acquisition of comfort and stuff or status or relationship. James's goal is pursuing God and pursuing Christ. And in that regard, he says that this testing leads to steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. Some of you might be familiar with a, a pastor author by the name of David Platt. He wrote a book several years ago called Radical. Um, but I, I was reading some of his material uh, just going through this series. And he had this beautiful profound moment that it just it took kind of took my breath away when I read this but he he wrote we need to realize that trials are not joyful in and of themselves but they are joyful when we realize that they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them and that's what's going on that's what what James is describing here is these trials are intended to refine you, to test you, to bring about faithfulness and endurance and perseverance. These don't take God by surprise. He's not caught off guard when difficult times come to his people. And so when difficult times do come, what does James suggest? Not to, to power through it. He doesn't suggest... Well, just uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and you can do this. He says to ask God for wisdom. In your circumstances, in your trials, go to God for wisdom. Because in your own circumstances, you only have access to the wisdom of what you have experienced. Even if you reach out to others, they are still finite in their understanding and what they have experienced and what they have learned. And so what James is saying is, take your questions to the one who is beyond our understanding, to the one who sees all and knows all and has the power to do all things. Go to him and ask for wisdom. It's not going to take your trials away. It's not going to make trials stop but you get a bigger picture of what is actually going on. In 1 Kings, Solomon asked God for wisdom to rightly and justly rule God's people. And what does Scripture say? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Solomon asked for wisdom, and it pleased the Lord. In Matthew 7, Jesus himself says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. James is saying, don't ask for wisdom for the meaning of life and all of these. He says, ask for wisdom to see the bigger picture in what your trial means. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. Ask, and ask in confidence. When James says, do not doubt, he's not addressing the, those that are not believers. For those of you that might even be here this morning that are not a believer in God or not a believer in Christ, 
Ask questions. That's the only way to learn. Dig deep. Pry. James is not addressing those people. He is saying this to the people who have said, Jesus, you are Lord over all, but... James is saying, don't be that person. You are Lord over all, but... Are you really big enough to handle this? Do you love me enough to get me through this? James says, when you ask, ask in confidence because the people that don't ask are tossed about by, uh, by the waves. He says, uh, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the show Deadliest Catch from uh, the Discovery Channel. Uh, and it's one of those shows that I've caught a handful of times, but I, just, I don't have uh, the emotional investment to connect with it because there, there are times where they're just going through these horrible circumstances when these storms roll in on the sea and they're fearing for their lives because their boat is literally being pounded and tossed about. And sometimes these men lose their lives as fishermen. And James is painting the picture that that is what it's like for the person who asks with doubt. For the person who says, God, I want an answer, but I don't think you're big enough to handle it. James is saying that person is constantly thrown about like a wave of the sea and is unstable. And then it seems like James goes off on a tangent talking about uh, poor people and rich people. And he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. And it seems like this just kind of comes out of nowhere. But when you look at the larger context of what James is talking about, he's talking about this testing and how it leads to something greater, how it leads to endurance and perseverance and steadfastness. James says, for those of you that are already struggling, for those of you that are low, there's an exaltation there because you are in the midst of learning and growing and being refined. And it's painful there's no denying that. He's, he's not saying, you know, just, just grin and bear it. But he's saying that there's an exaltation there because you are in the midst of these struggles which are producing godliness and steadfastness and holiness. But for those of you that have abundance and wealth, watch out. It's easy to trust in God when you have nothing left to turn it turn to. But when you have all of your, your cares and desires and needs already met, sometimes there's this tendency to think, well, why do I even need to go to God? And it's to those people James is saying, watch out. Because just as the sun can wither the grass and destroy the flower you too will one day die. And so for the poor person who is learning to grow in humility and through suffering, to learn holiness and steadfastness through that, 
James contrasts that with the person who is wealthy and has an abundance and says that can all be taken away in a flash. He moves on to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And he's echoing uh, this blessed is the man format that uh, for, for the disciples of the church, it's echoing the Sermon on the Mount. That just a few years prior, they heard Jesus himself teaching, blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for God. They, the disciples have heard this. They've, they've been taught this. And James is echoing that, and he's saying, Blessed is the man who in his suffering and in his trial remains steadfast, remains with endurance, who perseveres. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life. Not a literal crown, this kingly crown of, uh, of jewels and gold and, and magnificence, but... Uh, in that day, uh, Olympic athletes, when they would complete a race, especially, well, not just complete, but when they would win an event, when they would win a race, that the winner was given this wreath that was a celebration of what they had accomplished. And James is saying, just as those who have persevered and endured, you will be given the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so James keeps repeating that there are trials. They will come. And there is blessing to those who remain faithful and who persevere and who endure in the face of trials. But when those trials come, you have to recognize the temptation that is in your own heart. In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We see this echoed in 1 John 1.5, where John writes that this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is not able or capable to tempt someone to sin because it's not in his nature. Just as an an apple tree cannot produce oranges, just as a grapevine cannot grow figs, God cannot tempt someone to evil because there is no evil in him. So the question is, where does the evil come from? And in our culture today, and, and it's not even today, it's our human nature, but it's, it's almost even glorified today to where when bad things happen, there's every excuse available other than the person themselves. That when you sin, it's because you, you weren't hugged enough as a child. 
That when you sin, it's because of the way that you were brought up or the neighborhood that you grew up in or because your job treated you in a certain way or the government didn't give you what you wanted. The person that you did or did not vote for did or did not do something that you like. And there is every excuse available except for the sin that is in your own heart. But what does James say? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has, con- when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where does this sin come from? It comes from your own heart. Scripture speaks repeatedly that you and I are born into sin, that our heart is deceitful above all things. That you are spiritually dead in your trespasses. That is what Scripture says. And that sin that is in your heart leads to nothing but death, spiritual and physical. And so when trials come, there are two options. To remain faithful to God, to pursue Him, to seek Him, to ask Him for wisdom and understanding. Or to give way to your own desires, to disobedience, which leads to sin which leads to death. Again, that doesn't make trials and temptations easier, but it gives understanding of the larger picture. Because these trials are there for your growth, for your purpose, or for God's purpose for you. To grow you, to mature you. But the sin that's in your heart leads to temptation. And every trial leads to some kind of temptation. The, the trials of financial difficulty lead you to question, Does God, is God really big enough to take care of this? Is He going to provide for me? The death of a loved one leads you to question, does God really love me or did God love that person? Why did that person have to go? The trial of unjust suffering, neither the way that you were treated or someone that you care about has been treated, leads you to question, is God really just? Does he really care about his creation and his people? In verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's trying to say, not trying to say, he is saying, recognize the truth and what God has done. Because it's easy in your temptation to, uh, or easy in your trial to be led astray by your temptation to question God's goodness and His provision. And James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The verse that we 
looked at earlier from Matthew 7. I'm going to go back to again because there's more to it than just that one verse that, but it speaks directly to this. And in Matthew, starting in Matthew 7, verse 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? We have a heavenly Father who gives good gifts, perfect gifts. And even though it might not seem like it, in the midst of struggle and suffering, even that trial is a gift because God is using it to draw you closer to himself, to make you more into the image of his own son who is the best gift of all. Because on our own, in our own strength, in your own ability, you cannot do this on your own. This Christian faith, this redemption, this restoration, you do not have it within you to do this. And so the Son of God Himself comes, came in flesh. And Hebrews 4 says that, uh, that He was tempted in all ways, but without sin. Just as you know the struggle of your own heart, God the Son came, put on flesh, and experienced temptation and suffering and trials, yet without sin. To know the very struggles that you have and to take your place. The sinless God in, in flesh took your sin upon himself, took your struggle and your punishment that you deserve upon himself and gave you his perfect record. He took your status and gave you his. And that is what James is looking at when, he's in, when he says in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, redeems you, restores you, makes you and calls you sons and daughters of God so that in your trials and in your temptations that you are being made into His image to the glory of God. That is why James says to count it as joy. Not be, don't count it as joy because you're suffering, but count your suffering as joy because the end goal is God. The end goal is not to have a comfortable life. The end goal is not to hashtag have your best life now. 
The end goal is not the acquisition of stuff or power or relationships because all of those will end and fade away. James says to count it as all joy because for the believer, the end goal is the glory of God. And that is being used. Those trials, those temptations are being used to his glory for your good. So, when those trials and temptations come up in your life, when those struggles and questions come your way, are you trusting in your own efforts, constantly chasing after comfort and fleeting security? Or is your end goal the one who gives life? Is your end goal the one who gives good and perfect gifts to his children? Which one are you trusting? Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your, for your goodness and for your love. That even when our lives can feel like they're falling apart and we don't, we don't know where to turn to, God, you tell us that it pleases you to come and ask for wisdom. And so we ask for that now. We ask for your wisdom not to take these troubles away, not to take these trials and these struggles, but God, that you would give us the wisdom to see that you are greater than our struggles and our trials. Give us the wisdom to see that you are good and perfect, that you call us your own, and you are restoring us to something greater than we could ever hope for. And we pray this in the mighty and victorious name of Jesus. Amen.